Web 2.0. Innovation. Trend. Collaboration. Software. Got the world turning as fast as it can? Hear how technology can help, legally speaking, with two of the top legal technology experts, authors, and lawyers, Dennis Kennedy and Tom Mile. Welcome to the Kennedy Mile Report here on the Legal Talk Network. And welcome to episode 296 of the Kennedy Mile Report. I'm Dennis Kennedy in Ann Arbor. And I'm Tom Mile in Dallas. Before we get started, we'd like to thank our sponsors. First of all, we'd like to thank NOTA, powered by M&T Bank. NOTA is banking built for lawyers and provides smart, no-cost IOLTA account management. Visit trustnota.com forward slash legal to learn more. That's N-O-T-A, NOTA. Terms and conditions may apply. Next, we'd like to thank Colonial Surety Company Bonds and Insurance for bringing you this podcast. Whatever court bond you need, get a quote and purchase online at colonialsurety.com forward slash podcast. And we'd like to thank ServeNow, a nationwide network of trusted, pre-screened process servers. Work with the most professional process servers who have experience with high-volume serves, embrace technology, and understand the litigation process. Visit ServeNow.com to learn more. And with so many new podcasts announcing their very first episodes these days, as we, and at time, I got to tell you, it feels like we are rapidly approaching our 300th. Rapidly. We occasionally like to mention that at 15 years and counting, this is the longest continuously running legal tech podcast out there. If you have ideas for our special 300th episode or a question we can answer in the B segment of an upcoming episode, leave us a voicemail at our special voicemail number, 720-441-6820. In our last episode, we discussed the productization of legal services, primarily using document automation tools. In this episode, we want to discuss a topic so serious that the FBI and Department of Homeland Security issued a special alert in early September, and that is ransomware. Tom, what's all on our agenda for this episode? Well, Dennis, in this edition of the Kennedy Mile Report, we will indeed be talking about ransomware, currently the best-known form of cyber attack, and more specifically, one that has been hitting law firms, big and small, and what you can do to protect yourself. In our second segment, we're going to take our respective temperatures after the September Apple announcements. And as usual, we'll finish up with our parting shots, that one tip, website, or observation that you can start to use the second that this podcast is over. But first up, ransomware, why it's such a big deal right now and what you can do about it. Well, with stories about ransomware being headlines on the national news a lot over the past few months, I sort of get the feeling that a lot of you, most of you, may probably already know what ransomware is. Uh, But to get us all on the same page to start before we have this conversation, Dennis, what is this ransomware stuff and why are we talking about it? So I always think of ransomware, and it really is like the digital uh, analogy of the kidnapping ransom uh, approach. But I see it as a, a simple but in its own way, sophisticated form of cyber attack. Uh, so a hacker slips into your system, puts some in, uh, encryption software in place that uh, enables them to lock users out, and then those hackers 
demand money to unlock the data. It's really not much more complicated than that. The goal is to get money from you. And the leverage they have is they they make it impossible for you to use your data. And the incentive to you to pay them is that they will unlock the data so you can use it again. And I think it that's as simple as it is. So it's just basic, you know, criminal criminal activity 101 uh, uh, that's been done since time memorial. I, will, I did notice that the first use of the term uh, when I looked was back in 2005. And some people said that you really start to see it become uh, more common and people treat it with more seriousness around 2013. And I usually have seen, I don't know about you, Tom, you usually do detailed research on this, but I generally see it ranked as the number one cyber threat right now. It's, I know you've taken a look at this, Tom, so uh, would you agree with that? Well, I do. Um, and and although there are a lot of cyber threats out there, I think that we look at this uh, and it's probably getting it's probably number one because it's getting the most attention. But it feels like something that is um, I don't want to say simple to do, but it is very straightforward. I mean, the way in to get people is pretty straightforward and shockingly, or maybe not shockingly, simple uh, to get people to fall for this. I'm sure we're going to talk about that in just a second. Um, the only thing that I will add to what you to your definition of it is that, and we're going to I think get into this a little bit more later about some of the ins and outs, um, is that. I think that the original intent of ransomware was, like you say, to hold it ransom, to hold your data ransom, and to make you pay it until uh, until we, you know, unlock the information. Um, and so we'll talk a little bit later. That's why having a good backup is such an important thing. Um, but now that so many people are actually doing backup, that it's re and, and some of them are saying, you know what, I got a good backup. You can just keep my locked up data. I'll just go to the backup and re and. And restore it and I'm good to go. Um, so the ransomware people now are doing a second thing. They're not only flocking the information, they're making a copy of it and they're threatening to release it if the ransom isn't paid. So um, it's it's kind of a double threat there. It's it, We'll lock it up and then if you go any further, we'll do a little naming and shaming and we will release things that are sensitive to you, which in my opinion probably has it, it, it that's a lot harder to counter um, than, uh, than 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 just locking up the information knowing that a backup can pretty maybe not easily but at least uh, uh, be a workaround uh, that people can use to avoid being caught by the the ransomers yeah I mean it's sort of like if you if you look at the history of blackmail you sort of see all the all the techniques just kind of trans transplanted over into the digital world. But I think uh, you're right. There have been some big ones recently. And, and uh, so if any uh, anybody's gone to a webinar or ransomware has been discussed probably in the last six months, you've heard about the Colonial uh, Pipeline ransomware attack, which uh, shut down a major uh uh, gas pipelines in the in the southeast and caused the price of gas to go up uh, for that. And there's also been a lot of study of how the the how law enforcement was able to track some of those payments, uh, which is uh, another uh, aspect of this. So uh, 
time colonial pipeline. Some thoughts on that, or some other big ones that people should be aware of. Well, no, there've been. A, I mean, there. I mean, one of the biggest ones, and and maybe we'll talk a little bit about kind of the techniques that get used because um, because that's one of the bigger the bigger attacks that has happened in addition to colonial pipeline is a, a company called Kaseya uh, has some software that was what they call an attack vector. And um, one of the new ways um, that, and one of the popular ways uh, to attack a lot of people has been through managed service providers. Uh, instead of trying to just infect thousands of companies separately, um, why don't you infect their provider and wait for the infection to spread, and then you can nail a lot of them. And so that's what happened with the, the Kaseya attack, which was either end of June, beginning of July, something like that. It was like a $70 million ransom that they were requesting, and uh, uh, there were over 1,500 companies that were impacted, and and they demanded $70 million. So, um, uh, you know, that's that's a pretty, they're, they're getting more, uh, uh, more inventive. Uh, they're going after more money. They a- appear to have some level of a, of, a, of a conduct code or a code of ethics. You know, when they learned that they had gone after Colonial Pipeline, that they had really caused problems to the to the supply chain of oil and, 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 and gasoline, um, they broke it off. I mean, they apologized publicly for doing something like that. Um, and so they're going to places that are not going to hurt lots of people. Although you can argue that um, not all of them are so uh, beneficent. They are not all uh, as ethical or moral because uh, there have been a lot of hospitals that have had ransomware. There was, I think, um, a case in Germany where a person was, uh, the, the first official death by ransomware was at a hospital in Germany where um, because the, the ransom hadn't been paid or the money was done, then some of the equipment that was needed to keep a, a, a person on life support was not working. Um, and so uh, it, it's, it, they're not, in addition to committing crime, they, uh, they're, not, they're not all doing this uh, uh, with companies that don't affect people in other ways. Yeah, so one of the things that I find really interesting about these types of attacks is how they they combine, kind of uh, mix and match a number of, of standard techniques. So uh, email phishing is usually one of the ways that, uh, e- uh, that the malware gets introduced. It's sort of basic malware, uh, basic encryption tools, and then uh, Bitcoin and crypto, especially a uh, cryptocurrency, but especially Bitcoin has been part of it. And I would say that Bitcoin in its own weird way has been a little bit of a driver of this because it makes it easier. Because if, if you're doing ransomware and you don't have digital currency, you got to figure out like how you're going to get paid in cash and, uh, you know, keep it keep it secret um, and make those transactions. So Bitcoin makes that possible. We have some friends, and I, I know other people have said it's kind of been a running joke is that, was, uh, that was ransomware that forced lawyers to learn how to actually buy Bitcoin and, and what it was and what to do with it. Well, you know, it's interesting that Bitcoin really is what makes ransomware so profitable because it is untraceable, it's digital, it's instantaneous. Um, 
there are a lot of legislators out there right now who think that ransomware could go away if Bitcoin or other digital currencies were either banned or significantly regulated. And they're thinking about implementing regulation in order to combat the ransomware issue. They think that ransomware would go away immediately if they didn't have a ready source to that information. What's interesting is, is that some states um, are actually considering banning, passing laws against paying the ransom. Now, some of the states are forbidding the use of taxpayer dollars to pay the ransom. Um, so, uh, you know, companies can't, the, the state won't pay, you, you, the taxpayer, won't have to pay for some company doing a stupid thing. But actually, New York is actually prohibiting private companies from paying a ransom, which feels a weird. It feels just kind of interesting that they would require that. Um, What I also found interesting was in the Colonial Pipeline case, the U.S. government was able to recover over $2 million of that ransom. And so it's not untraceable. It's not uh, something that you that's gone. So it's not foolproof. And it's very, I think, also interesting to wonder if more of that is happening, if the government or the, the, the good guys are being able to trace uh, the dollar payment, the Bitcoin payments, or be able to get some of this money back. I'm, I'd be interested to see how that affects the ransomware going forward, if law enforcement is better able to, uh, to strike back in some way. Yes, understanding how they got that money back is is something really worth studying as we go forward. So, generally, you get the argument that uh, it's that Bitcoin is actually a good form of uh, to have people pay in ransom because because there are some ways to trace that. In this case, there were some stories that maybe uh, third parties involved, uh, and we'll talk about ransomware as a service a little bit later. Uh, kind of provided information to to make that make it possible and there are other mistakes made but the state approach is really interesting to me because it's like if you say you can't pay the ransom under state law then basically the state has told you that you have to go out of business right in yep. the, in a classic example you go that's a weird law and then if you say you can't use Bitcoin as a payment, basically you're forcing people to the perfectly untraceable uh, route of cash, you know, um, and then we're going to have people <laughs> carrying bags of cash around, you know, to, $70 to million dollars in cash <laughs> down the street. <laughs> yeah, I just, you know, you're going like, why are all these uh, armored trucks going around? Well, but see, that's the other problem is, is that is that one of the things that Bitcoin is so good is that it allows for, um, you know, sort of the cross border payment. I mean, you can you can do your ransomware from Russia and there's a ton of different groups, um, but, you know, they've set it up easily to um, to and, and monetized it by having this cross border money transfer that makes it so easy if 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 you get do away with the method of payment I do think that could cause serious harm because it would essentially restrict you to only being able to do it in, in ways that you or, or you'd have to hire somebody to pick up the money I mean there's lots of scams that I know here already in other countries that that hire people in the United States to pick up the money so not impossible but significantly harder so let's talk about the basic approach to this, Tom. So the basic approach is that, uh, to remind you is that people are going to come in, they're going to lock your data, uh, encrypt it. Uh, they're going to encrypt your files, even drives, and then pay you to get a key that they will provide the encryption key to unlock them. 
Um, so that's the theory, and um, and that sort of leads us to how best to prepare uh, prepare for this and to protect yourself. Um, and to me, if we go back and we look at everything that's that's been described over the years as good cybersecurity hygiene, that's really your best defense. And especially kind of minimizing access levels and what uh, what people are allowed to do. Because, you know, a lot of times this is an escalation attack where people find a way in and they're able to access their privilege, uh, ideally for them up to an administrator level. And that allows them uh, that gives them essentially the keys to the kingdom to do anything, anything they want. So, um, I don't think we have to go into a lot of detail of that uh, about that time. But you might add a few thoughts on there, and then kind of lead us into what is really uh, always been the key piece of ransomware, which is backup. Well, so I mean, I'm I'm actually gonna, and I'll put this as a link in the show notes. I'm gonna just quote from a great. Uh, infographic that uh, that NIST put out on ransomware tips and tactics, which I think are the main pieces of 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 ways to protect yourself. And these are all really straightforward. Um, but this is if you're a firm of five people or a hundred people or a thousand people or whatever. But good antivirus software, obviously, we talk about that all the time. That goes without saying here. Making sure that your computers are patched, your systems are patched, your network is patched because wherever the flaw in the in the in the software is they will exploit it i mean if we've if you saw the story it wasn't a ransomware attack but the verizon excuse me t-mobile uh breach was done because there was a flaw in one of their routers uh the router software had a flaw in it so making sure everything is fully patched blocking access to known ransomware sites you know having your 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 internet web software to make sure that nobody inside your company or your firm can get to these sites even if they're doing it in a inadvertently. You know, one of the hardest rules is to restrict personally owned devices. That That's one way to get ransomware in is let people bring their own devices and then they do their own thing. Obviously, you reduce the risk um, if you if you can control the devices, but that probably is one of the hardest pieces of advice, I think, to follow. Make sure that you give your users standard user accounts that have no administrator privileges. The more privileges they have, the more they can let into the computer and allow things to join. Avoid using personal apps. Avoid using your email or your or a chat app or something that you personally have from a work computer. That's another way for things to get in. And then really the standard rule about, about ransomware is unknown links, unknown documents, things that you get where, you know, you might recognize the email address and it's somebody you do business with or somebody that you work with, but they might not actually contact you or communicate with you in that way. Be smart about what you get and don't just immediately click and question it. And if you have a question, then go to the person and say, hey, did you send me this email or did you send me this text message or whatever? Don't immediately assume that it's right. I do that with every time I get a, a, a notification that claims to come from my bank. I will go on to my bank account. And if it's true, I'll get a notification once I log into my bank account. If not, I know that it's that it's a, a fake uh, phishing attack. So really Really, being smart about suspicious things that you might get is really the number one way to avoid uh, protecting yourself from ransomware. Dennis, I've been talking for a while. Do you want to follow up with any of that or go on to the next topic? 
Yeah, I was going to let you talk about backup, but uh, I'll I'll jump in. And so basically, the notion here is that if uh, if the the ransomware people have come in and they've encrypted uh, sort of like your live network, all the data on your live network, that if you have uh, good backup, you just restore the backup and and you're good. So that's conceptually uh, why backup is so important, but. Because these attacks evolved, and you know, Tom's given a, a couple of examples, but the, the one evolution was that uh, you would you would put the the malware in uh, that was going to run the ransomware attack, and you would let it lie dormant for a while and kind of let it proliferate through uh, different backups. And so you really didn't have any good backups. So what you found was, to your surprise, uh, all your backups were encrypted too. And so you had no way to re to restore it. Um, so that was a sophisticated attack. Uh, we also saw some things where people kind of got to places you didn't expect. You thought things weren't connected to networks, but they were. That's where you see the router flaws, the printer flaws, those those kinds of things. So you have, so backup is so important and checking the backup and, and all of that. And just it just emphasizes so much that backup is is just such a key part of, of security. Yep. So let's talk maybe about what happens if you're a victim of ransomware. There are a number of steps you need to take. I think that um, the the first question that I usually ask, and this is something we do a lot for our clients, is, uh, but it's it's more in the area of a data breach more than a ransomware attack. But I think the principle is the same, which is. Do you have an incident response plan? How do you plan to respond to this? And it's not just about getting your backups. It's not just about the technology. It's about who do you notify? Do you talk to your clients? Do you talk to your insurance company? Do you talk to law enforcement? Um, are, if you're a big enough company, do you need to have a press release or some sort of communication that goes out because this has happened? Um, an incident response plan covers uh, the gamut of all sorts of things. It's not just about dealing with the technical issue. It's about how do you respond to it to reduce your risk, your client's risk, um, and make sure that you're doing things properly according, because there's a lot of laws related to this too, making sure that you're following the laws. Um, that raises the question, do you need cyber insurance? Um, do you need to, to have insurance that will cover you in this event? You know, it's interesting because the ransomware people are making it difficult for cyber insurance to really do their business now because they're actually attacking the insurers and, and putting ransomware in their computers as well for selling it. Obviously, backup and restore, making sure that that, that capability is available and protected to avoid the problem that Dennis was mentioning. Knowing who to contact, including law enforcement, is important. Um, and then another link I'm going to put in the show notes is from the, uh, the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, which is a U.S agency that really is doing some really great work um, that is probably primarily a, a lot responsible for, uh, along with Homeland Security, with getting some of that money back, my guess is. Um, they have a Stop Ransomware website where you can learn about it, you can learn how to report it. Um, it really is a good one-stop shop for ransomware. I'll, I'll put that in the show notes so you can go get more information. Dennis, what any anything you'd like to add on on what do you do if you're a ransomware victim? 
Well, I think having some kind of plan is important, but uh, clearly uh, most people don't do that and you can never predict everything. So uh, I think you need to assess, uh, have an idea of who to call uh, and uh, just a general approach to it um, and then uh, and have the right people involved in making decisions. There are uh, these sort of... Uh, kind of helper businesses that are developing, you know, like people who really can help you handle uh, ransomware attacks. Uh, there are even ransomware negotiators, uh, like kidnap ransom negotiators. Um, so there are, a, there, there is a lot of help. The general feeling is, and you saw this in with Colonial Pipeline, where we know they paid $4 million, that uh, a lot of times victims do pay the ransom going forward. So uh, that's something you have to think about. And that's why there was the running joke about lawyers needing to learn how to buy uh, uh, Bitcoin uh, because they were paying off, uh, paying off ransomware. But sometimes it's not as simple as that. And if you look again, to look at the history of blackmail, you, you kind of see this is that you may pay and you may get no response at all. You may pay and they give you an encryption key and they're just not very good at what they did and the keys don't work. Or they might keep, uh, they, the malware might not be removed and they know that you're somebody who will pay, so they'll hit you again. So it really becomes, as Tom says, there's this whole incident response notion that you want to have a plan to start with and you need to keep modifying and say, well, what happens if any of these these sort of bad contingencies happen? So I, I guess the other thing I'd mention, and Tom, you touched on this, is that there is this kind of rules of ransomware, informal rules out there where and there are some companies that, that sort of offer ransomware tools and off, off, offer ransomware as a service even to even to uh, to criminals and uh, but they do have a set of rules it seems like and so it's really frowned upon to go after hospitals although we saw it we know that certain parts of infrastructure are off limits. Uh, I, I always like to use the example of pacemakers, clearly off limit, uh, although definitely attackable. Uh, and so there is this informal set of rules, like there is a line and people won't go over it, but they're also, you know, we're finding more and more people willing to go over those lines. So uh, all of that needs to get factored into your, into your, contingency plan. And I would say if you can lock up a law firm that given the deadlines and stuff they have, it's you're probably likely to be able to demand a fairly significant ransom to unlock that. Last piece that I didn't mention, I can't believe I didn't mention it, is training, training, training. Um, it's not just enough that you know and you're smart, but you need to make sure that you and your your employees are smart too. And lots of lots of folks out there who will offer cybersecurity training, who will offer to send test emails to your uh, to your employees to see if they fall for things. That I think is a really important way to make sure you protect yourself. So I think this is only going to get worse. It's only going to be more. There's just it's not going to stop anytime soon until uh, you know either Bitcoin gets shut down or somehow they find a way to make this not profitable, but it is increasingly profitable. So uh, it will pay for all of you to learn how to deal with it and how to protect yourself and then how to respond to it in case it's a problem. 
Yeah, I would say that we also know that blackmail and kidnapping has never gone away through the whole history of the world. Um, I, and I did want to mention, Tom, I'm teaching a class in cybersecurity and data protection at, at Michigan State this semester. Great students were really having, uh, in its in its own weird way, fun with the class, but we're learning a lot. But I'm going to do a, a practice simulation of a ransomware attack and see how the students, what the students come with up. Come up with to uh, to res- as in response to that. So I I do think that ransomware, like all cybersecurity, is something that lawyers need to know about to be technologically competent. That's what I'm uh, my argument uh, with the students. And I think that uh, if uh, so, you have two things: how do you protect yourself and your firm? And then I think even more significant is as a lawyer, what do you do if one of your clients comes to you for help? because they're being attacked by ransomware. And I think you're in a bad place if you don't even know what it is or or what they might do or how to help them. All right, before we move on to our next segment, let's take a quick break for a message from our sponsors. You went to law school to be a lawyer, not an accountant. Take advantage of Noda, a no-cost IOLTA management tool that helps solo and small law firms track client funds down to the penny. Enjoy peace of mind with one-click reconciliation, automated transaction alerts, and real-time bank data. Visit trustnoda.com legal to learn more. Terms and conditions may apply. Wish you could get a quote and purchase an appeal, trustee, estate, or any other court or fiduciary bond quickly online? Colonial Surety Company has every bond you need and is a direct insurer that's U.S. Treasury listed, licensed in all 50 states and territories, and rated A excellent by AM Best, so you can be confident it's a trusted resource. Get started at colonialsurety.com forward slash podcast. Looking for a process server you can trust? ServeNow.com is a nationwide network of local pre-screened process servers. ServeNow works with the most professional process servers in the industry, connecting your firm with process servers who embrace technology, have experience with high volume serves, and understand the litigation process and rules of properly effectuating service. Find a pre-screened process server today. Visit www.servenow.com. And now let's get back to the Kennedy Mile Report. I'm Tom Mile. And I'm Dennis Kennedy, and it's time for our segment we call Hot or Not. We pick something people are talking about and argue whether we think it is a hot topic that you need to pay attention to or not. We might agree, but odds are that we won't. So let's get started. Tom, Apple made a bunch of big announcements of actually the day before we recorded this show. So generally, when that happens, that means that you get the chance to call me uh, an Apple fanboy. However, is what we heard yesterday from Apple hot or not? So... I am finding that when a company now has a what they call announcement day, and this is the season, the fall is usually the season where we start to see a lot of the announcements, the announcements just aren't as thrilling as they used to be. I mean, we used to love watching these because um, you know, we've, I, I think we've largely reached a plateau in technology where companies aren't able to offer truly revolutionary products where they where they could do that five or 10 years ago. We'd say just, wow, amazing. You know, it's a phone and it's 
it's a computer and it's all and it's a podcast device and it's all in your hand. Um, we just don't have that. The products are still great, but I consider them part of the kind of expected evolution of these products. You know, if they don't do a certain amount of update every year, then so what? And so I, 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 that's what I really expect everything to roll out. So with that being said, with 10 being a smoking hot announcement day and one being ice cold, I will give Apple's announcements a seven. Good, solid products, but nothing amazing. And let me give my defense before Dennis weighs in. So let's go down the list. There's a new iPad. They upgraded the internals to the fast processor, but there's no change to the look and feel to the iPad itself. So I say ho-hum to that. Now, the one thing that we both agree on is the new iPad mini. I'm very excited about this. I was sad when they stopped updating the mini a while back because, um, because I really do like the smaller form factor. That is better to me than a Kindle. I use that as a, as a content consumption device, and I have already purchased one of those. So that's the one that I've got. It looks it looks they've updated it it's faster i'm looking forward to it so i am excited about that that is hot um they updated the apple watch i don't have one so dennis you can gush about it but it looks like a nice respectable evolution of the watch now even tougher against dust falls other tragedies it's an all-around nice upgrade but nothing to me that's just amazing there are three new iphones there's the iphone 13 mini there's the iphone 13 and the iphone 13 pro where they actually said the the statement during the announcement that it's more pro than ever before which i just don't even know what to do with that all of them are faster they all have slightly better battery life so i say these are all natural evolutions the big upgrade really for both the iphone and the iphone pro is on the camera they, and Dennis, I know you're going to talk about this more. They've included some really cool features that I think are useful for content creators. Um, they're going to allow you to make more professional-looking videos. There's a cinematic mode that looks really cool. Unfortunately, it's not available in 4K resolution, um, but that still doesn't take away from the fact that it's a very cool feature. Not sure, and I know, Dennis, you're excited about it. Not sure how that's going to be, how exciting that's going to be to the average lawyer, but I think those are the most exciting new things uh, that I saw come out of the announcement. So I will say that 7 is a good, respectable level of heat for, an, for this particular Apple event. Nothing amazing, but nothing boring either. So that's my take. Dennis, let your fanboy fly flag fly well i sort of gauge things on how much how many of the things they announced i would actually like to buy so in this case and you got away without saying that you've already ordered an ipad mini uh but i have i have also ordered an ipad mini be and but i've been wanting uh, the mini type of device and platform for a couple of years so it was just a matter of waiting for this generation to to arrive and the, the regular iPad, it's okay with me, uh, but nothing that, uh, I, I, it didn't distract me from just going ahead and getting the mini, even though mini's uh, more expensive. The watch, I think there's significant updates, uh, but uh, they're, they're evolutionary, as Tom says. It's just nicer in some ways, but what's really happening is in the software. So in the, 
in the rollout, the first thing they showed was all the cycling features, even like a sensor to tell that could uh, recognize that you had fallen while riding your bike. And that just blew me away as a cyclist, um, like those tools. But that's basically the next version of the watch OS. So that will run on the watch that I have. So no compelling need for me to get the new watch. The phones, as you said, Tom, there's camera pieces, the, uh, uh, what I would say, like the power of them. I mean, there's neural networking and uh, uh, machine learning built into these phones. And so, so as a platform, it can already do some cool things. I expect it to do more. There's this thing that's been around for a while that on, uh, if you're doing a video, it will kind of adjust the focus and even to the point where if, if you move, it keeps you in the center of the frame. If somebody walks into the frame, it changes the focus so that you're both in there automatically without you doing something. So I think, Tom, as you alluded to, that content creation piece is is really interesting how it's how it's built in there. But so really like cool. What's really cool about that, let me just say, is is that it saves the content for both people. So if there's two people in there so that you can actually go in there after the fact and say, you know what, I put the focus on this person or they'd put it, but I really want yep. the focus to be on this person. You can actually change that focus afterwards, which I think is awesome. Yeah. And, and then you can also see just as the technology advancing, just, you know, so you can take better pictures. And uh, I don't know, Tom, whether you saw this, our friend Fred Faulkner tweeted, it's Kind of funny that they still call this these things smartphones because the only the only feature not mentioned was was the phone part of this, uh, which is I think two things that we all know. One is hardly anybody uses phones anymore, especially young people. And the the second thing is like the uh, the the quality of phone calls is probably worse uh, these days than it's than it's ever been. So it's uh, so I'm I'm really you know, the phone is the least interesting thing to, to me as well. So I, I think it was, I think it was hot, but it's, I think it's just building this platform that is going to, uh, the technology just keeps sneaking up on us. So we're, you know, uh, we're going to have these things where it's like, wow, it's, it's like, we do have artificial intelligence in our hand. We do have these things. We're able to do these things. Um, but as somebody who creates content, I really like the tool set that's being put together um, there. And so in my case, this, the new iPhone Pro is really interesting to me because there's uh, three cameras on it, um, and it'll, uh, including a telephoto and including a way to take macro uh, photographs. So I just see it as like definitely a platform that I can use for a while. So I'm heading in that direction. So I'll give it uh, a pretty pretty darn hot for me on the iPhone, iPad side. And there are more announcements from Apple to come uh, later this year. But I, I liked what I saw, including uh, some new colors. So now it's time for our parting shots at One Tip website, our observation you can use the second this podcast ends. Tom, take it away. I will say first that you did not let the fanboys down by your review of hot or not. So congrats and good on you. All right, here's my parting shot. We've taught and I'm breaking my rule by doing this parting shot because I usually don't talk about things that have yet to be released. Um, but I'm, 
unreasonably excited about this, and so I wanted to talk about it. I've talked on this podcast before about Readwise. Readwise is the great tool that will take all of your highlights from your Kindle books, from your Instapaper, from your pocket, from places where you highlight things, and they will capture them and then move them on into your, for us, into Notion or any or, or multiple other tools, Evernote, other tools where you keep information. So it's kind of the perfect note-taking and synthesis and transport vehicle. Well, right now what they do is they take all of that from all those sources and move it forward, but they're thinking to themselves, why can't we just be the source of all that information? So they are building their own reading app that is going to allow you to do RSS feeds, uh, I hope, newsletters. If they don't do that, I'm going to I'm gonna email them and suggest they do it. Um, they're going to, you can put articles in there, you can put Twitter threads, you can put all sorts of things. So they're cutting out the middle person, they're becoming their own middle person and saying, let's, you can read and consume all the information here, highlight it all here within our app. And I've been looking for kind of my new favorite RSS reader um, in, a, in, in a while, and, and I haven't really found anything. I want this to be that app. I don't know that it will be, and I may very well be disappointed, but um, everything they've done so far, I really like, and I really think they are taking a good approach to it. So um, if you like, if you're already a member of Readwise, you can get on the waiting list for what they call their private beta. Just go, we'll put the link in the show notes, just go to that page and enter your email address, and you'll get a notification when they send more invites out. Um, but uh, otherwise, if, you, if you're not, go to Readwise and start subscribing to it. I think it's a super tool. So Tom, here's my reaction to that. Could you, uh, could you put that URL in the, the Zoom chat uh, for me so I can sign up right away? There you go. So my parting shots uh, is something that uh, is not necessarily technology, but something that I found really interesting. So I was... Uh, on a webinar, and uh, a guy named Louis Glassy, who's an expert on psychological safety, was talking, and I talked to him afterwards, and I said, I'm going to do this design thinking event, and I want to get more participation from my students in class, and is there a, and normally to establish a sense of psychological safety, uh, which Google did a study of its best performing teams and the, the factor they identified most important is something called psychological safety. So how much trust do you have? How willing are you to expose yourself and to, uh, to share your, your thoughts and opinions is a really key thing. So I said, is, and normally it takes a long time to establish that. I said, is there any, do you have any tricks to, for, to kind of accelerate that process? Cause I'm, you know, I have this group of, uh, 20 some first year students and I would like to do them have them do this design thinking thing is there a way to kind of accelerate that sense of trust and, and safety and he said yes I have something that I do and it's a two minute video and it's by a guy named uh, Simon Sinek and uh, S-I-N-E-K and, and it's called Be the Idiot the truth about being the stupidest in the room and it's on YouTube uh, so you can find it right now by just Googling, uh, you know, be the idiot, but we'll, we'll have the link in the show notes. And he describes like how part of his approach is he's really comfortable with being the dumbest person in the room and asking questions. And you might not think this relates specifically to psychological safety, but what I found after I showed this was that both the groups seemed really comfortable 
brainstorming and sharing ideas in ways that I hadn't seen before. And several of the students said that they really liked the like seeing the video. It's like one of the favorite part their favorite parts of the process that we did. So I recommend that. And I think it's uh, the what he describes there is really useful to lawyers in their practice because uh, I think lawyers sometimes care too much about being the smartest person in the room and the value they bring is asking the questions and and asking the stupidest questions so that they make sure that everybody's on the right page. So a uh, very cool two-minute resource, totally recommend it. I usually don't have to worry about being the stupidest in the room. Um, it just comes naturally to me. So that wraps it up for this edition of the Kennedy Mall Report. Thanks for joining us on the podcast. You can find show notes for this episode on the Legal Talk Network's page for the show. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to our podcast in iTunes or on the Legal Talk Network site, where you can find archives of all of our previous shows along with transcripts. If you'd like to get in touch with us, reach out to us on LinkedIn or Twitter or leave us a voicemail. As Dennis mentioned, we're coming up on our 300th episode. We'd love to get questions, feedback, your uh, recordings or anything. That voicemail mailbox is 720-441-6820. Please leave us a message. So until the next podcast, I'm Tom Mile. And I'm Dennis Kennedy. And you've been listening to the Kennedy Mile Report a podcast on legal technology with an internet focus. If you like what you heard today, please rate us in Apple Podcasts, and we'll see you next time for another episode of the Kennedy Mile Report on the Legal Talk Network. Thanks for listening to the Kennedy Mile Report. Check out Dennis and Tom's book, The Lawyer's Guide to Collaboration Tools and Technologies, Smart Ways to Work Together, from ABA Books or Amazon. And join us every other week for another edition of the Kennedy Mile Report, only on the Legal Talk Network.